This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at Craft Beer Brew. Welcome to the Craft Beer and Brewing Podcast. I'm your host, co-founder and editorial director of Craft Beer and Brewing, Jamie Bogner. My guest on the podcast today is Brandon Caps of New Image Brewing in Arvada, Colorado. Welcome to the podcast, Brandon. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to talk about terpenes and uh, you know other kinds of hoppy brewing techniques. Brandon wrote, uh, actually, Ryan Packmeyer, one of our uh, blind panel judges and also a writer, wrote a story on brewing with hop terpenes that uh, sourced with you. And uh, we are ripping this episode of the podcast straight out of the pages of the August-September issue of craft beer and brewing magazine so hopefully you all subscribe to the magazine and have read that story if not obviously you need to go do that and uh and check it out and of course brandon uh, and new image shared a recipe for a double ipa to go along with it um to brew using some of these techniques so check that out um i'd love to uh, dive in and talk more about that subject uh before we do that reminder we are throwing a happy hour for cbc thursday september 9th 3 to 5 p.m beerstadt lager house the beers beerstadt beer are on us and our friends from the Comte Cheese Association are sending, I think it's a half wheel, 44 pounds of uh, Comte uh, cheese to pair along with those beer style beers. It's going to be rad and we hope you join us for that. Uh, of course, we'll be chewing it as safe and uh, socially distant and outdoors as much as possible and trying to make sure that uh, as everyone gets together for CBC that everyone stays healthy. Uh, also, a reminder that our best in beer issue deadline is September 3rd. That's Friday, September 3rd. So get your submissions in now. Uh, like your flagship beer, you can rely on GD chillers for the same quality and consistency. GD guarantees that every chiller they build will hit 28 degrees without breaking a sweat. They never stop, they draft, they craft, they service each and every brewery, big or small all in an effort to build one hell of a chiller. For nearly 30 years, GD has been committed to cold. Reach out for a quote today at gdchillers.com. Also, even the best yeast deserves a helping hand with seltzer fermentation, which is why Pathfinder N-Pure Seltzer Nutrient ensures reliable and complete fermentation of a seltzer base while providing a clean, neutral fermentation profile. Not to mention it provides all the essential nutrients required by yeast for production of hard seltzer bases fermented from those sweet, refined sugar. Give your seltzer yeast a boost by visiting bsgcraftbrewing.com and searching for Pathfinder N Pure Seltzer Nutrient or call BSG at 1 800 374 2739. We're sitting out on the patio of uh, of new image here in arvada a suburb of denver if you guys come up for cbc you're gonna have to pop up here to arvada check out the brewery and tap room brandon's making great beers you may hear some little tap room noise in the background because it's a real place and people go here in real life and it's so nice to be able to do these things in in uh in real life again brandon yeah yeah seeing people again it's a wonderful feeling yeah yeah so uh let's talk about uh about new image and your uh kind of arc through through brewing you know as we kick it off uh walk me through your brewing history and what led you to this point where yeah. uh, we all started new image i'll try to do the concise version uh not a skill that i'm great at but i will do my best uh so um i was an electrical engineer at uh georgia tech and um i started uh, i was doing this program um called co-oping which is where you have internships, but on a consistent basis with a single employer for an extended period of time. 
And I was browsing around looking at different options. And I was looking in oil and gas, automotive, kind of all sorts of different areas. Um, and then there was one that sort of caught, actually, it didn't catch my eye, it caught my friend's eye. And he was like, hey, Budweiser has a uh, an internship. Uh, and I was like, huh, that could be kind of cool. Um, and so I went and interviewed for that one. And I was particularly interested because it had it described having managerial experience and, and having more like people oriented stuff. Because I knew that as much as I loved being an engineer, I knew even going into school, I didn't want to be um, a programmer for the rest of my life. Uh, so anyway, interviewed for that position, ended up feeling like it'd be a good fit, uh, took the position and worked uh, for Anheuser-Busch for three years uh, while I was still in college. And um, it was interesting because I really uh, grew up, grew up very religious and not anymore, um, but it was a pretty kind of prude kid. Sure. Um, didn't drink, didn't like do anything fun. <laughs> um, I did some fun stuff, but I uh, just abused myself in other ways like breaking limbs and crashing bikes but um went to college i really wasn't like um much uh, a, a partier in part because georgia tech didn't have a great party scene a great like blacking out scene but not a great party scene <laughs> um and uh so i started this internship and i started out working in the uh maintenance side of the packaging uh sort of half because uh, they really separate it like physically and department wise into brewing and then production and production, of course, means packaging. Um, and uh, that was interesting. I did not like it uh, at all. I'd really it was like a big culture shock for me to be in that particular department in that particular plant. Um, and I was not doing well. And I actually found out like three years later in my exit interview that they were considering not renewing my co-op oh. after that, that term because I was just so miserable and it was so clear, but they were like, well, he seems like he has a lot of potential. Why don't we try moving him over to brewing and see what happens? And I moved over to brewing and I absolutely adored it. The first project I ever had was on, um, cereal cooking, uh, idealization. So I was specifically doing rice cereal uh, mash for Bud Light brands and trying to figure out the exact perfect amount of time to boil <laughs> rice uh, for Bud Light and, and to not occupy you know equipment for too right, long and right. get better optimization. Um, and it was interesting because while doing that project, I was still kind of struggling with like what brewing was, you know, people would just use all these terms. I had these images in my head and it didn't necessarily line up because the equipment there is so big and it's yeah, not yeah. hands on. So it's hard to like fully grasp it. And, um, so my mentor at the time who, I don't know if you've ever met Dan Khan, but, um, mm. he was actually on Sierra Nevada's like head of R and D for like six years. And then he just left a couple years ago to be a master distiller because why not? Sure. UC Davis guy, AB brewmaster for 23 years, then Sierra Nevada. Anyway, he was my mentor um, at AB and he said, hey, why don't you try like home brewing, um, which I was 19 at the time. Um, <laughs> uh, he's like, why don't you try like doing a simple homebrew thing? Um, see if it helps you like understand the right, processes right. we're working on better. Um, so I like went on Northern Brewer purchased an all grain brewing kit and a Weizenbach, uh, like recipe kit, which is two of the weirdest combinations. Also got a full kegging setup. Hmm. Um, so I brewed my first, uh, homebrew beer. It was an all grain Weizenbach that I kegged and actually brought out here. Um, and we were staying up on, uh, Dillon Reservoir cause I grew up in Georgia. Hadn't mentioned that. Um, but been coming to Colorado my whole life. Uh, so landing here was a very organic thing for me, but 
Um, brought it up, camped on Lake Dillon, got absolutely trashed on that beer. Um, but that was a maybe like the second or third beer I drank in my life um, was this homebrewed Weizenbach. <laughs> and sure, um, sure. it was funny because the process of homebrewing woke up uh, this dormant thing in me, which was I was very into like music and playing music and physical media, did a lot of black and white sketch when I was younger and really wanted to be some form of an artist when I was younger. And somewhere in my early teens, someone was like, don't do that. Be an engineer. Uh, you don't want to be living in a van down by the river for the rest of your life. <laughs> um, and so I went to engineering school, got the degree, all that stuff. Right. But I discovered brewing and it was like, you know, at the time, this is 2010, craft was exploding. Um, and uh, there was a lot of potential for entrepreneurship in that space, which I was very interested in. It was very technical. It had a balance of artistic, had a balance of business opportunity. Um, so I got really intrigued from there. And it, it was kind of like, that was sort of like the inception moment. It was like right. drinking this beer in Summit County that we'd brewed and brought out there. And um, yeah, so from there, I continued on with that internship. I knew pretty immediately I didn't want to stay there. Um, I did. I just did not like the big corporate company life it was soulless. They had, they had just got bought out in 2008 right. by InBev too. And so I was watching the salaried staff get cut from 160 at our plant to like 75 and over the course of two years. And, you know, corporate of course asks or acts like that was just a perfectly fine thing to do. Everyone there is just like pounding 12 coffees a day and working 12 hours every day and uh, using some pretty not, kosher labor practices that I didn't realize at the time because I was too young. Anyway, <laughs> realized really quickly I didn't want right, to be right. in that Fortune 500 corporate ladder structure thing. Told them that in my exit interview too and they were like really not stoked on it. Sure. Um, which I thought was funny but I was like, yo, I, I just, I don't bullshit. Like it's just who I am. Um, so I told them like when I was in my exit interview, like I think I'm going to go start a craft brewery at some point. Um, so when I graduated college, I actually got connected with Matt Katase and Asa Foster, Bridge Gentlemen, sure. um, and moved up to Braddock. Uh, we'd all lived in this convent together, um, and started Bridge Gentlemen. A convent? Yeah, a literal convent. Uh, yeah, it was down the street at the other end of, have you been to Braddock at all? No. Um, so at the other end of the, of town from the breweries, it's a very small town, about a half mile. Right. Um, is a little convent that is right across from the original um, steel manufacturing plant. Um, I forget the name. Something works, but the you know Carnegie's like first major steel plant. Yeah. Um, and there was this little convent there that uh, you know everything in Braddock like after the seventies eighties really just went down and like became very vacant. And so it was extraordinarily cheap. I mean, like an unreal number of cheap to live there. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, so lived in Braddock, uh, built out the brewery with them, um, started up the system, brewed, you know, the first nine or so months worth of beer. Um, it was an interesting experience. Uh, it, it didn't work out that I ended up wanting to remain there, um, but it was certainly a fast track in like learning what I wanted to do with the brewery, what I didn't want to do with the brewery, um, what I wanted to make, especially, yeah. um, became a lot more clear from that experience. And then just, you know, the very grassroots, very like kind of opening with substantially less money in the bank than we wanted <laughs> and like sure, working forward sure. from there kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, so, um, that was my first real experience in the craft side, which, I went through this phase of like, I've got all this like 
big beer technical knowledge. I know a lot of terms that craft brewers don't usually discuss because they were in all of our daily meetings. Um, I have no means to measure those things and I have to do everything with my hands. Right. It turns out I have a lot to learn there. Um, so it was a crash course, lot, lots and lots of like 12 hour brew days followed by eight hour bar shifts. Um, so I very much lived there, uh, yeah. for about a year. Um, but yeah, learned a lot, got connected with some cool people and, um, then decided, uh, after about a year there that, um, for a bunch of different reasons. And, and one of the big ones too, just being that I'd realized like, I really do want to move to Colorado. I've wanted to do my whole life and yeah. I don't think I'm going to be happy unless I do that. Um, and, uh, so I decided to move out here and start new image. So I created the LLC in the end of 2014, hired a designer, started working on branding, signed a lease in mid 2015. And we got the brew pub here opened in 2016. I promptly broke my wrist two weeks after we opened, <laughs> uh, as the only production team member. Oh. Um, so I was brewing, I actually built this patio in a soft cast. This is 13 tons of pea gravel. Exactly. Oof. And I shoveled all of it with a broken wrist um, <laughs> and then brewed that same day. Start um, a brewery, they say. It'll be great, they say. Yeah, it has been. Yeah. I won't lie. Yeah. It's, been, it's been hard, but it's been, it's been a pretty great journey. Um, sure. So, yeah, started up here in 2016. And, um, yeah, kind of the rest has been pretty decently documented. <laughs> sure, sure, um, sure. But, yeah. Well, let's pivot and talk a little bit about brewing. But before we do that, the most common complaint about hard seltzers, they need more flavor. Extract alone is a weak flavoring agent, can leave a chemical aftertaste, but there's a better way. Craft concentrate blends from Old Orchard are packed with real fruit first, no added sugar, just enough natural flavor. Breweries are turning to Old Orchard concentrates for seltzer with more body, color, and aroma. Turn seltzer skeptics into supporters with seltzer that drinks like a beer. Get started at www.oldorchard.com slash brewer. Also still emptying those overflowing waste bins of crushed low fills or undercarbonated cans every canning day. It's time to fill like a pro. Pro fill can fillers from ProBrew use rotary, true counterpressure gravity filling and seaming technology to run at speeds of 100 to 300 cans per minute with minimal DO pickup. Stop wasting perfectly good beer. Email ProBrew at contact at ProBrew.com today. So, Brandon, talk to me about uh, brewing with hops. Uh, you know, clearly you're in Colorado. People love hops here. Um, you've come out of a brew gentleman background where they were had you know, kicked off making some kind of fun, hops, juicy, soft kind of hazy uh you know i pay although they got hazier as as, as years went on it yep. seems like you know even those folks that started unfiltered ended up being you know more consciously uh hazy later yeah. in that kind of process um you know but talk to me about uh kind of you know going down that road on uh on brewing hop forward beers yeah um well i'll i'll start with kind of it started at brew gentlemen really um so at, when i first got into brewing i'd considered myself to be like mostly like a multi-beer brewer. Yeah. Um, that was my focus. That was kind of where I was you most comfortable. You Weizenbach roots, you know? Yeah, totally. Um, but uh, obviously opening a brewery with a tap room um, anywhere, we were cognizant of the fact that we needed a flagship IPA. Matt and Asa had a recipe that they had kind of started working on before I became involved with Brew Gentlemen that they wanted to scale up and replicate. Um, and that was General Braddock's. The original General Braddock's was actually based off of like a stone 10 year anniversary IPA recipe, <laughs> which is kind of funny. Um, and so we brewed that that way the first handful of times. But at the time, I just I was like, 
you know, again, this is like 2009, 2010, or sorry, no, this is like 2012, 2013. Um, and we were, um, drinking that and just like, you know, like, this is, this is fine or whatever, but like, it's just so bitter and dry. And like, though I've come to appreciate that more now, sure, especially sure. at the time, um, being, I think I was 21. <laughs> um, I wasn't like super into that IPA, the way we were brewing it. So I asked them, like, would you guys be open to me changing some stuff? And one of the first things I changed was I had never used an American ale strain ever as a home brewer. Um, I just thought that they were kind of boring being like all their flavor descriptions are like neutral. Right, and I was right. like, I mean, this is like a fruit forward, you know, very complex beer. Um, and you have these yeasts that produce flavors that are adjacent to those. It's so like maybe there's a hybridization there that could be utilized. And so I think I started out using like Y yeast British ale too. Um, or maybe it was like number five. I forget exactly which one, but it's a little bit more fruity, a little bit, uh, a little bit more, um, turbidity would be left over from that. Um, and so I started just making these slow and steady changes where I was using more, more hops like Simcoe and Citra that I really liked, um, and using yeast that were a little bit more expressive. And, uh, the first batch that we made that was hazy, we were like, shit uh, <laughs> this looks like garbage right. um we need to fix that and we could not and we were too poor not to sell it um and so we not not that it didn't taste good because it did and we were like it, it tastes great it just looks wrong and we're gonna get the shit kicked out of us for this um and we served it because we had to um and it killed absolutely crushed and we're like okay well that was interesting it's not expected so we started to kind of like let that rabbit hole expand and then we hired Zach, who I'm not sure if he's still at Brew Gentleman, but he was the head brewer for a good length of time after I left. And he was very, very specifically obsessed with Hill Farmstead, um, really followed the Alchemist closely, which I had like I didn't even have a social media at this point. So I wasn't much of like a follower or brewer right. trader or any of that. I was very much just kind of discovering everything organically. But he turned me more specifically onto some of those sources. And we started doing projects that were more specifically targeted at like they're doing this hazier IPA. We're still not certain how we feel about it. Hadn't quite blown up as like a world trend yet. Right. Um, and uh, so we started experimenting more intentionally. The biggest change we made immediately was using London 3, um, which has gone on to become a very consistent rotation in our portfolio. So that that's sort of the backstory on how I got into hazy IPA brewing. Fast forward to starting New Image. I My focus was actually on mixed culture when I started New Image. Um but we made East Coast Transplant. And then you decided you actually wanted to sell beer and uh, have a profitable business. So, you know, the funny thing is that it really had nothing to do with what I wanted at all. Um, I We opened with an adjunct stout, a hazy IPA, which was East Coast Transplant, um, a mixed culture sour. Actually, a, it was a fruited mixed culture sour and a hopped mixed culture sour and a barrel-aged wheat wine. It was like our five <laughs> beers we opened with. Kind of a weird lineup. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, yeah, so I made East Coast Transplant, and the idea was I wanted to make an IPA, because I had to, um, and I wanted to make the only type of IPA that I liked, which was this like thing that we sort of stumbled into making at Brew Gentleman. And I remember we put that out, and at the time, especially because when we first started, I had this thought that- you like, marked it a Vermont IPA. Right, which, of course, which wasn't made in Vermont, which caused some other issues. We won't talk about that. But Yeah, I did get it. I, get, I did get some- um, I got some emails about that. Yeah. Um, those Vermonters, man, they are very, uh, anyway, 
And there is some tie there, but I won't get into that. Um, but, uh, yeah, well, it was specifically because I had felt at this time, like hazy IPAs in the Northeast were starting to become a thing that was discussed and known. Um, and I personally gravitated more towards like the Alchemist Hill Farmstead um, kind of profile for IPAs more so than like the Treehouse. I'm not sure if Trillium was like going at that point. Um, I just found that like with within Hazy IPA, even at the outset, I felt like there was a distinct difference between you know, north, right, northeast right. up in Maine, Vermont, and then northeast in like Connecticut, Massachusetts. And so I wanted to identify us as specifically having going down the thread more of the Vermont brewers style, um, which I would define at the time, maybe not still as more hot side forward and less like cold side focus. Mm. Um, and so that was kind of like why we had that designation. Anyway, made this IPA and um, actually got like, I used to do like sales at that time, taking, you know, growler samples to bars and stuff. And I got fucking laughed out of so many places, like <laughs> so many, so many like prominent beer buyers in the Denver Metro told me like, this is garbage. This is like trash that homebrewers make. You should just like quit now. Uh, and I was like, <laughs> cool. Appreciate your feedback. Maybe I'll check back in in six months. One of the only people who gave me good feedback at the time was actually Chris Black at Falling Rock. Yeah. Um, RIP. Yeah. Um, but, uh, and it was funny too, because he was, he was both very encouraging and very honest. And he said, I don't think that people here are ready to drink this yet, but I think that this is a really cool thread and I'm excited to see where you go. Why don't you check in with me every six months until people are ready for this? And I was like, that it turned out to be very insightful. Um, and so we, uh, uh, produced that beer and, um, it just blew up. Like it, it really, it was one of the earliest. We brewed the first batch of East coast transplant in 2015 and it was on the market for bars in, uh, I think like July of 2015. So it was among some of the very first sure. iterations, you know, within months of the first time, anyone, I think maybe, I believe Chris, when he was at fiction brewed, like the first one in like March of that year, Yeah, I brewed the second or third is like us fiction on 13. We're all kind of exploring that space at similar sure. time simultaneously the trend was about to like blow up nationally um and so again still wasn't like i think someone created instagram for new image because i didn't think <laughs> i didn't I, it was like something my sister right. used in middle school and i was like i don't know what that is i don't want to yeah. fuck with that um so uh yeah it it just it just blew up and and it turned into something that we were brewing so much of because it was like what people want from us the other things were selling don't get me wrong um and they were doing well but it, East Coast was just absolutely eclipsing. And so that's really, you know, I had this sort of moment early on with New Image where it's like, well, I could uh, like fight this um, organic interest in our IPA program, which not that IPAs weren't my focus at the time, but um, anything that was brewing was my job and I wanted to be good at my job. Sure. And so I felt like, well, if this is what people are most interested in, let's dive deeper into this space. And so from there, um, we just really became very dedicated to trying to understand our own hot forward beers as they were and also push them forward. Um, and yeah, so the last like six years since then, it's just been um, us growing into our own hoppy shoes and sure. learning all sorts of different things along the way. 
it's such a that's a funny one because you know even uh, two episodes ago when I was talking to Ken Grossman he was he meant, made that point that sometimes gray liquid with a brand that's not exactly right for it it doesn't connect with people misses the mark and uh you know a beer named east coast transplant in a state like colorado where most people who live here didn't weren't born here yeah you know, it's a state that people move to mm-hmm. um yeah and you know it seems like that's i mean it becomes that beer that even some people might just buy for their friends because they moved here from from the east coast and yeah. so you know it's, it's a funny piece there to try to connect what that beer was with the name for that beer and, and kind of finding that resonance around it yeah oh and, and like then then the story behind the name too is like i was an east coast transplant sure. the whole idea sure. was like it's gonna be and i picked i picked colorado because i wanted to live here i also picked it because i was like well this is a pretty mature beer scene and i knew from the get-go that i wanted to focus on um ipa adjunct stout and mixed culture sour and i was like that's a pretty esoteric lineup it's not red ale lager kolsch uh you know west coast ipa as we call it now at the time it's just ipa um (laughs) and uh didn't want to just do like the standard taproom lineup thing we actually built out a 16 tap draft list um originally but only five of them were ours and the rest were part of why we became a brew pub is so that we could buy beers from other people. So like our starting lineup had like Almanac and Prairie and things on there. And my whole philosophy was I don't need to make everything. I'll buy the stuff I don't want to make from people who are passionate about it. And I'll focus on a smaller amount of things that I really want to be good at. Um, And that was the philosophy that we opened with and has pretty much remained. It's just now that when you release two or three IPAs a week, you fill out a draft list pretty quick. Um, But uh, yeah, so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, let's let's again talk about you know, like following that arc of of hops. Um, you know, uh, clearly you've gotten into some experimentation, and uh, you know, as the world of IPA grew more and more diverse, more and more expansive, you know, and now stretches everything from sour fruited quote unquote IPA, um, you know, to the most bitter and austere, uh, examples of West coast. And now even into like cold IPA with, uh, you know, super clean and crisp fermentation, you know, expressing hops characters, uh, you know, figuring out how to stake out territory and achieve flavor has been something that you've continued to focus on. And one of the areas that you've kind of pushed uh, towards is brewing with hop terpenes, um, you know, which are obviously sourced out of hops, but, uh, you know, but distilled out or, uh, you know, created or focused in different kind with different kinds of methods in order to give you the exact building blocks of flavor, you know, that, that generally you know, will hops contribute. Let's talk a little bit about uh, what led you down that path and what you've found from doing it. But before we do that, your beer deserves all your attention. Clarion makes that a little easier. Their food grade lubricants will help keep your system running smooth. We'll also safeguarding your product from costly contamination and recall because then you'll be in full compliance with food safety standards. It's all thanks to a simple switch to Clarion. A food safe system lets you focus on your craft. We'll drink to that. Go to clarionlubricants.com to learn more. So yeah, Brandon, what took you down this uh, this pathway of, of, of exploring terpenes as a building block of, of flavor? And when I say this, I should also mention that uh, we do talk about terpenes on, on other episodes of the podcast. I had a great conversation with, with uh, Keith, uh, Keith Villa from uh, Saria Beverage, former Blue Moon guy. Uh, and he certainly talked a lot about terpenes in a weed cannabis kind of compl- uh, uh, context. 
the uh, uh, entourage effect, as, uh, as the cannabis world likes to call it. And also talked about that with Ross Koenigs of New Belgium. Um, but talk to me a little bit about your you know, focus on using terpenes in addition to hops as a way, uh, you know, to, to kind of uh, focus on flavors in a more direct and intentional way. Yeah. Um, so the, the buildup to this came from um, noticing that, especially with Hazy IPA, there's been a pretty obvious uh, push for years. And I'd say that it, especially like 16, 17, 18, it was just kind of getting out of control, like the saturation wars in the same right. way there was like, it was like IBU wars with West Coast brewers back in the day uh, with hazy brewers in the first three years of it really blowing up. It was like, how many pounds per barrel can we dry hop until we just literally can't even rack the beer out of the tank anymore? Um, and that was not really my jam. Um, like I, I've never been one to just a declining utility to it too. You know, number one, like you hit saturation points where the, the liquid can't take anything else, you know, fr that you're putting in there and you're right. just throwing money away, putting more hops in and soaking up more liquid. And well, why do that if it's not having an actual effect on your beer? And there's a lot of research to indicate that, uh, more is only more to a certain extent, especially with traditional hot products. Right. Um, but nonetheless, I was very cognizant of this effort that was happening and, and we were simultaneously trying to sit, figure out like how can we you know dry hopping methods and different other things how can we push the saturation further in these ipas that seems to be a big focus uh 16 17 18 19 forward um and then in 2019 I, it was actually gabf and i was downtown grabbing a beer and station 26 did that same day ipa um they uh added galaxy hop terpenes to, and then delivered kegs the same day as packaging to bars. Um, and I ordered it, uh, at a spot, uh, I was actually at park burger, um, in Rhino. And I was like, I actually did not love it. Um, it was very, very intense. Um, but, uh, I pounded it, went downstairs to Osaka to have some ramen. Um, but I was thinking about it. I was like that, you know, the last beer I had that had this potent of, this specific character was I tried Hemperer from New Belgium, also not a beer that I have. I, I tried it once. Um, that beer is insane. It is uh, unique. Yeah. <laughs> um, not not for me, but for people for sure. Uh, well, I 100 percent agree with you. Like that's a beer where I I very specifically recall opening a bottle of it and the room smelling like that beer like mm -hmm. I, I have not experienced a beer that took over the entire room like that beer did but i mean that one the aroma and that was absolutely out of control i yeah. mean you, you knew what you were drinking right there the the burp on that beer is absolutely out of control uh like that was the thing that like drinking i was like oh this, this is like isn't too bad and then i i burped and i was like oh my god i, I can't handle this um such but, a fascinating uh, process on that beer, too. And then yeah. they, um, I mean, and talk about the great things that brewers get to do these days in, in labs of certain breweries running uh, various weed cannabis samples through their uh, uh, gas chromatograph uh, mass spectrometer mm -hmm. in order to identify compounds that were, you know, producing aromas and then figuring out how to get those terpenes back into the beer in a way that reconstructed that aroma but did it in a legal way so that they could sell that like i mean that's pretty wild to oh, see yeah. science happening at that kind of level absolutely um so yeah so i tried that station 26 same day ipa uh during gabf 
And I, it, it, it threw me, it was so different that like, it did just like, you know, every time you try something that new and unique, it's hard to like really appreciate it for what it is. Yeah. Um, but it made enough of an impact for me that I was like, well, um, I think there's something here that I'd like to explore. And so I talked to Jameson and got in touch with the supplier, which is um, Osthouse Oils. It's based out of Lafayette. So they're right here in Colorado. And they were also doing some work with Telluride. I hadn't had a chance to try any of the stuff that they were doing with them yet, but reached out to them. And um, a lot of people were exploring their product as a means of cutting down on material cost, um, utilizing less vegetal matter, potentially cutting down on shipping weight, all things that I am very much interested in. But I, I wanted to approach it with a different angle, which was I am looking to push past certain barriers to hop volatile saturation in beer. And this seems like it might be an avenue to explore that. Um, and so we commissioned them to do um, some projects for us. And one of the things that's been really from the get go and remains super cool about the relationship we have with these guys is that we're able to give them the hops to process. Um, so we have control over the sourcing. We have, we're able to use, you know, our contracted hops that we select every year. Um, so rather than just in my prior experience of using hop extracts of any type, it right. was usually just like, as I've come to know the stuff that did not get selected, um, and did not yeah. even get chosen for the like commercial blend average of that varietal became extract. Wasn't producing like the best beers. We played around a little bit with it. Um, like some of the hot side extracts from YCH early on. Um, but this was different cause it was like, cool. Like this is a very intentionally made product. Uh, and, um, and, and we can have more impact on that. So the first thing that we tried, what a fun way to be able to do it again with your own selected hops, yeah. you know, or at least contracted hops, even if you're not large enough volume to select, but still being able to have that kind of connection to it. So it's not just a product that you're buying off the shelf. Right. And so the first beer that we did was in, um, I guess late 20, actually maybe it was 2018 GABF. Oh, it was, it was 2018 GABF, not 2019. So in early 2019, we did, I guess it was an Italian Pilsner actually, although I don't think we called it that at the time. Um, they weren't trending yet, uh, <laughs> uh, at least not, not around here, but, um, and not in the way they are now, but we did a, uh, a Pilsner base and then added just a little bit of Nelson Savin terpenes to it because I felt like this will be a really clean substrate where I can really see the impact that this is having on the beer distinctly. And um, that'll be a great way to like evaluate the first time and did that. And it, it did well. Uh, I, 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 a lot of people loved that beer. I enjoyed drinking that beer. There were some things about uh, the terpenes from Nelson specifically that I was like not 100% sold on. Um, but obviously wanted to dive in further. So we did, I think the next thing we did was a, uh, galaxy terpene dry hopped version of our flagship East coast transplant. That was very popular, rated very well. People were pretty stoked on it. Um, I, I've never been like the biggest fan of galaxy myself. Um, but that one, um, it also, I felt like there was a characteristic of Galaxy that is very potent and very vegetal that it enhanced that um, in a way that I didn't find super pleasant. Um, it managed to work all right with that beer. But so kind of the next step was to keep trying different varietals. And at this time, we were still very much kind of going in blind um, to the process and trying different things. But we ended up trying Strata. And that was the first time that we had just really big success. And that was the first pure isolate series, um, which is a series dedicated to cold side, uh, super critically 
supercritical CO2 extracted terpenes. Um, and the one that's in the uh, article and that the recipe's for as well is pure isolate. Um, and the first very successful variant of that used stratoterpenes. And when I evaluated those prior to adding them, I was like, man, this just smells like the freshest strawberries I've ever smelled. There was none of this more like kind of dank, uh, weedy affect to it. Um, and, uh, actually the most recent one, which we do have on tap, we'll grab some in a bit, but, um, is using stratoterpenes. And so, um, so I started to learn from that experience, all right, there's definitely varietals that lend to this and there's varietals that don't. Um, so I'm going to kind of keep having to play around see which ones I like better and which ones I don't. And then maybe further down the road, we can explore why and, and maybe try to further distill and perfect, um, you know, how to use these things. Um, and, and what's been great is that we have a, again, a very direct relationship with the supplier and they have been, um, very open about working with us to develop their process and their products. And we actually commissioned them to make, uh, cause the terpene thing, which they call fusion as a brand name is just terpenes. We commissioned them to make a full spectrum extract that is similar in a lot of ways to incognito from Barthos. Um, and, uh, so it, it's been cool because we've been able to request specific changes, request specific products and actually let's, write. Let's break down. I'm, I'm yeah. curious what the difference you know, is between there. First, talk to me a little bit about the extraction method and then what the difference might be between isolating terpenes and, uh, you know, kind of full spectrum. Yeah. So there are a few different processes. The one that the supplier we work directly with uses is supercritical CO2 extraction. So. Um, they have actually, it looks pretty similar to a brew house. Um, there's kind of a charge chamber, which is more or less like the louder ton. Um, and, uh, then there's two expansion chambers. And so what they do is they pack the hops into this charge chamber and then they, um, I don't know the temp and, um, time and pressure specs, but they get CO2 into a supercritical state, which is just a combination of, uh, basically it, it in liquid form um, and supercritical CO2 is like a near perfect solvent. Um, so they bring it into this supercritical state. They pass it through the charge chamber, which again, it's essentially the louder tons kind of sparging CO2 through these hops, um, getting full dissolution of everything but the vegetal matter. And then I believe that it is the control mechanism really boils down to and, and how you create the different extracts, what your, um, what your expansion chamber uh, pressure and temperature settings are like so that you have certain volatile compounds that will um, come out of solution as a distillate and concentrate and then remain in these expansion chambers um, versus continue to pass through into the waste chambers. So that's the process is using this. I mean, and supercritical CO2 extraction is used for all kinds of extracts. Right. Um, uh, and, you know, they this group started specifically in the cannabis industry working for, you know, um, companies doing live resins and, you know, just all these different, right. um, products. Uh, and they had obviously figured out the parameters for ter monoterpene isolation through that process. Um, and so there's, uh, you're asking, there's sort of two different sides to this. And when we, when we approached them originally, they were just doing this cold side focused, monoterpene, not, not inherently cold side focused, but a monoterpene focused extract. So they wanted to leave behind all the acid, all, all the other oils and just get those terpene molecules. Um, 
which especially two, three years ago, there's a lot of conversation around like, man, how much of you know hot flavors coming from terpenes and hazy IPA turbidity coming from terpenes and so on and so forth. So that was what caused them to try to divert what they were doing with cannabis into beer uh, or hops and beer. Um, and then the other side of uh, supercritical CO2 derived hop extracts is full spectrum. Um, and again, the probably most widely known uh, brand name for that would be Incognito from Barth Haas. I know a lot of people who are playing around with that. Um, although surprisingly, not a lot of people are like talking about it, Yeah. Um, which I think is kind of interesting. I don't really know why that is. I love talking about it. I love talking about what we use. Um, anyway, um, so with that, you're basically, it's called a full spectrum extract for a reason. Every single dissolvable thing in that solution comes out and that becomes the concentrate. Um, with both the, the weight to weight ratios are absolutely insane. So like a 44 pound case of hops will generally distill into like a 400 milliliter solution of monoterpenes and about a kilogram of, um, uh, full spectrum extract. So when you're talking about like shipping weight for, for instance, um, a kilogram of full spectrum extract versus the 20 kilograms of, um, the, you know, T90 pellets, so much potential there. And like really right. right now, the focus that we have is on getting the flavor to where it's a true substitute from that point. One of the huge potentials on top of things I'll get into and, and more of my focus with it is, you know, if we could be shipping less weight, like that's, as we all know, helping with some existential crises that we are facing as a species, um, saving money, which is great too, saving the world better, better object. Um, but, um, so there's a lot of really cool potential here. And I think that that's long-term where I see this not even really being optional. Um, and that's why I'd like to be involved now so that the product can become what we as brewers want it to be so that when the necessity to use it for the purpose of, um, reducing our carbon footprint happens, that we've helped to channel this into becoming something that we want to work with. Um, I hope that's not too fatalistic, but I do think that that is both one desirable for people, but two, eventually there will be a necessity to cut down on how much we're shipping things. Um, so those are the two sorts of sides of the extraction process. And it, it looks very much just like a brew house, um, very tall cylindrical brew house, um, that is, uh, using supercritical CO2 instead of water and, uh, grain. And, uh, so yeah, that's the extraction process, and um, then you know, as this, uh, uh, these are flowable products, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how does you know as the uh, you know terpenes are extracted or, or in a full spectrum way, terpenes, acids, everything else that's in there, um, you know, how does that remain liquid? Do they then bind it to something, or you know, um, what, how, I, I'm curious about that piece of it. Yeah, so I, I will not pretend to have any expertise on the specific molecular structures of a terpene. I will say that the comp- 100% terpene isolate that we get is um, absolutely hydrophobic, um, but it is a flowable liquid. Uh, we treat it with very high-proof alcohol um, in order to allow it to dissolve better into a weak solvent solution 
being beer. Um, and, uh, and that helps with stability. That was one of the things that we, one of the first things we wanted to tackle. Cause a lot of the people I talked to would use it. were like, yeah, like we literally dump it in after the beer is carbonated, we run the carb stone for 10 minutes and then we start canning and we run the carb stone every 10 minutes throughout the canning run. Um, and even then with the cans, we tell people to like roll them around because they get, um, they get, uh, separated and, um, stratified. Uh, so one of the first things that we wanted to address is, well, how do we fix that? That seems like a solvable solution. Right. These compounds dissolve in, in beer with dry hopping. They should dissolve as an isolate. It should be easier, right? Um, we explored emulsions. We explored like uh, microporous injectors. Uh, turns out dumping it into Everclear gets the job done. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. Occam's or, or no, that's not Occam's razor. It's the simplest solutions. The correct one. I forget which one that is, but anyway, uh, maybe that it, I think I you're know. right. I think you is actually it, had it right. Right. No, and I yeah. know, and I've seen plenty of pitches from companies, especially on the cannabis side, who are uh, you know pushing this idea because you know clearly uh, you know THC and others are also not water soluble, not soluble in liquid. Uh, without that kind of emulsification process, there's a whole you know there are industries and uh, kind of and patents around this kind of thing to mm-hmm. help make those things you know um, remain stable in liquid. Um, but yeah, it's interesting yeah. that simply alcohol will do that for you yeah and it i tell you it looks friggin science green like you you take this relatively clear terpene solution dump it into this high alcohol solution and it instantly turns this glowing just like dexter's laboratory green (laughs) and then we immediately dump it into the bright tank um so yeah the the terpene product is flowable the um, full spectrum extract includes wax, oil, acid, and that one is is much more like at especially at fridge temps. It's a candle. I mean, it's yeah. it's hard. Um, and we will heat it up with HLT water typically. And and that product we've only experimented with usage on the hot side. I definitely know that there are a handful of people who use it on the cold side, um, and that's something that we do plan to explore. Although I kind of feel like. Well, I don't know. I, I won't speak too much to using full spectrum on the cold side and whether or not I'm into it or not, because I have not yet done it. I have theories about whether or not I will or will not be interested in it. But, um, yeah, uh, we'll explore those theories. I'm curious. Yeah. But, uh, um, you know, so when you are using even your mon- your singular terpene kind of approach on a cold side, um, you know, what does that look like? And, and let's talk about it from a theoretical perspective, because clearly you're not only using that to produce hot flavor in the beers. Right. I know you have a, you know, from a creative perspective, um, you're using it almost in the same, a similar kind of, uh, you know, technical fashion as a brewer who makes, you know, pastry stouts or dessert stouts might use a little bit of extract in order on top of an actual ingredient in order to just like push an aroma, uh, you know, kind of intensity in a, in a nose. It's not necessarily a replacement, but it is, does heighten certain experiences and certain elements of things. Talk to me a little bit like, you know, from a philosophical perspective about your approach to that. It's perfect because the philosophical philosophical perspective is super important here. Um, and it actually relates perfectly to extracts too, which is that, um, if, if you, if you know much about like what extracts are, they're not, I mean, you have, you have flavors and you have extracts. Flavors are imitations that are derived from usually lab created molecules, um, that are not the product. Uh, however, extracts generally tend to be the product um, concentrated into a form that is soluble and easy to use without a lot of matter that you don't want to deal with. So like, and there's different quality levels to everything. So like for instance, with vanilla, I've experimented with side by side, 
vanilla bean crushed ground everything thrown right into the beer results from that versus using certain types of extracts there's certain companies and certain extraction types that i like better and certain ones that i don't so um with hop terpenes specifically and with hop extracts specifically one of the the first philosophical points that we've had to explore and not just philosophical but um well starting with philosophical i guess uh it's all the same thing ultimately because we're not definitely not trying to get like vegetal compounds in the finished beer um that is a mistake that should not be made um we don't want green pellets floating around uh when we pour draft beer that's just not doesn't taste good i don't know if you actually drank a hot pellet by accident but it sucks oh god yeah it's not pleasant so so ultimately what we do want is we want the volatile compounds and hops dissolved into our beer is ultimately the goal how we get there there's options. So there's one way, which is dry hopping traditionally in terms of cold side, also hot side addition methods as well. Um, but we are using either heat or alcohol predominantly with the traditional products we have in order to, um, extract the volatile compounds from hops, acids, oils, terpenes, etc. Um, while alcohol itself is a pretty good solvent, something that I really learned from treating the terpenes is that if you dump terpenes into vodka, that will not do it. Um, it really has to be like 95 proof um, before you really get true solubility. And that helped me to understand just how hydrophobic a lot of these very aroma active compounds are and why there is both a inherent um, loss with dissolving in a weak alcohol solution, but also kind of an inherent beauty too, because by dissolving and by this, I'm referring mainly to dry hopping in a weak alcohol solutions of five to 10 ish percent alcohol beers on average. Um, you're the alcohol in and water are acting as a certain amount of solvent for these volatile compounds, but there's a lot that gets left behind because it's just not that strong of a solvent. However, you go over here to supercritical, supercritical CO2 land, and you have an extraordinarily strong solvent, um, that can take just about everything out of something except for glycosides, which you can get into later, um, with hops specifically. But, um, so you get this near perfect extract and that's like one of the biggest differences that we've had to try to learn our way around with using hop extracts versus hops is they are the same thing. And it's interesting too, with the full spectrum extracts, cause you're, you're literally just taking everything that's already there, um, except for the leaves, which we do not want because all we get from the leaves is polyphenols and those do not taste great. Um, if you're not familiar with polyphenols, if you ever taste a beer and you're like, that could use a week, that's because of polyphenols, um, uh, especially with like green tasting IPAs. Uh, so uh, it would it would seem logically like, you know, you just pull the stuff you want out and then put it into the same solution and you should get something relatively similar. Definitely not, um, especially because of the treatment process we do to help these hydrophobic molecules dissolve into the solution. We're, it's, it's almost like we're too good at getting certain compounds out of the hops that we have not been getting out through dry hopping and hot side extraction. So trying to... When re- you say certain compounds, I, I, I can see where you're going here, yeah. right? Because, you know, if, if you're dry hopping, you've got, uh, yeah, 7 to 10% alcohol liquid there that is just going to be much less efficient at extraction than you know say your your much higher alcohol kind of ever clear or vodka kind right. of approach um but you say that it impacts different things in different ways right so some things may be more you know equally efficient but other things may not be yeah well, how, 
Well, how do those differ? So, and that that's what's cool too, is that this is very much, um, you know, we're about three years in with experimenting with these products, but we're still just scratching the surface of where we want to go. And a conversation I had with our supplier last week was, all right, so like Galaxy, Nelson, Citra, not been my favorite terpene extracts that we've used. Um, some of those is plasma, which is the hot side full spectrum extract I have liked. Um, but distinctly those three, I found to have more of this offensive kind of vegetal dankness to them. Um, whereas strata mosaic, um, I think talus we've also used, which surprisingly was very clean. I would have expected that to trend more like galaxy, but it didn't. Um, all that's to say there, there's been strains. We really like strains. We really don't. So I, I said, well, we're doing gas specs on every one of these. Why don't we start by doing a cross correlation study and look at what, what is there more of in these ones we don't like as much of, and especially what is there less of to none of in the ones that we do like, because I don't think this is about getting what we want. I think it's about not getting what we don't want. And that's the next step in the process is probably a subsequent distillation that removes compounds that we identify as being not not typically extracted from weak alcohol solutions, but that are extracted in supercritical super, uh, super CO2 solutions. And can we further refine the product to remove those? Um, because that would probably be easier than convincing people to like them, um, <laughs> uh, as we've learned. Um, it's, you know, it's just like making friends. It's like, is it easier to change or is it easier to convince people to like who you are? <laughs> um, it depends on your age, I think. Um, sure, anyway, sure. Uh, so... Do you have some ideas about what those things are that you uh, may not like? Or are you still just in the early stages of, it of looking at that? It is literally, like I said, this Last was like week. a Thursday conversation about let's pull all of the gas spec um, data that we have for everything we've done. Because this has been consistent with different sources of strata, different supplier or I said sources and suppliers, different different um, uh, crops, different years. That, that one has been consistently the cleanest. And that's what's in this pure isolate, which... Um, which I've already finished off. Yeah, yeah. Um, I love it. I think it's like very much like fresh strawberry. And it's incredible because in a 30-barrel batch, we're only using like 22 pounds of, um, of uh, vegetal matter for the terpene derivation. I am approximating that to having in a 30-barrel, which is... What's that? Just, just shy of like 0.75 pounds per barrel. It has the impact of about two pounds per barrel of T90 um, equivalent. So we use about a, a half to like one and a half X sort of factor for the amount of terpene or the amount of vegetal matter that terpenes are derived for versus the amount of impact, relative impact we want to have for dosage. Um, and uh, which, which is great because, again, it cuts down in usage by a substantial sure. amount. Um, but, yeah, so that's that's been like. The, the last three years has been discovering what what are the consistencies that we do like, what are the consistencies that we that we don't like, and then what do we do from there? And we're just now starting that next step with the monoterpene isolates, which is further refining it to to recognize. Okay, clearly um, there's somewhat of a beauty in, in you know at, as we discussed earlier the inefficiency of dry hopping, um, the diminishing returns of hop sat saturation. There is some beauty in that because we're leaving behind things we don't like. Um, this is kind of like uh, our philosophy on coffee, for instance. I used to use whole, uh, like coarse ground, and it was some really low dosage, like an ounce per barrel or something, something very, very low. Now we use whole bean and we use a 
pound per barrel for approximately the same flavor. And instead of dry hopping warm for three or four days, we dry hop it or infuse it cold for less than 12 hours. And what we found is that that like that green peppery kind of vegetal character that you tend to get. Um, I believe it was someone from Bottle Logic who turned me on to this idea that like maybe where we're getting that green character from is the very center of the bean that's the least completely roasted. And, and mind you, roasters will probably tell you, well, hey, if you're a good roaster, you don't have that. Uh, but, you know, let's let's say for the sake of argument that that is a thing. But if you're going from the outside in and then back out from whole beans, you might be more likely to extract exclusively from the fully roasted portions of the bean and not from the less roasted portions. So there's a there's a desirable lack of efficiency of extraction that happens with coffee that we have distinctly discovered and utilized. Right. And we're recognizing that impact with these hot products. This inefficiency in extraction is actually a real positive thing when it comes to flavor because it favors some things and it seems to favor the things that we like more than the things that we don't like. And I, and I think I would say that it's probably it's the reverse that's true, which is that we we like the things that this inefficient extraction favors because it's the only means we've had available for the last few hundred years. Yeah. And so we've developed a palette for these naturally extracted processes, which I, I think is fundamentally where a lot of people get hung up on the difference between a true pro- like true whole product being used, whether that's adjunct hops, whatever, versus extracts, is that we recognize there's a difference in flavor. I think that gets scapegoated as being something that it isn't and being like artificial or whatever. I, I think it's actually the problem is that we are used to this inefficiently derived version of these flavors and not the true, actually potential flavor of these products. Um, again, though, do we want to ask people to adjust their preferences or do we want to see if there's a way to further refine this? And it might be a little bit of both down the road. It might be that we have these further refined products that are more closely emulating our weak alcohol derived flavors. And then also another section of products that are like, well, this is distinctly different, but hey, different doesn't have to be bad. Um, and I think especially with the full spectrum extracts on the hot side, especially the brewers that have used them are recognizing that like, man, there's a, there's a lot going on here that's pretty awesome that we can't get with normal, normal hot products. Um, I have a theory that one of the reasons that those products seem to work a little bit better in terms, well, I should say work better being in the context of tasting more like what we are already adjusted to has to do with the fact that you're taking this concentrate, but especially if you're using it on the hot side, you're still just dissolving it in more or less the same solution. Um, and it's a highly agitated, hot water solute or slightly acid adjusted water sugar solution. So I think that we're getting a more similar extraction from the use of full spectrum on the hot side than what we are getting from a alcohol solubilized uh, extract of monoterpenes on the cold side, which is why the hot side products, I think, have been adopted at a higher rate so far than the cold side products. Um, But so those are the next steps is what are these compounds that are throwing us off? Can we further distill and isolate this to where those aren't there? And then we have something that's truly a substitute because at the end of the day, I had a, I had a math teacher in high school who had this phrase she was known for, which was doesn't matter how you get there as long as we get there. Um, I fully believe that like, and, and I do love, uh, traditional brewing techniques and traditional approaches to a lot of things. Um, I will absolutely probably get a tattoo someday that's hammered into me with a shark tooth just for the sake of fucking doing it. Um, but it's going to look about the same as something you do with a needle, maybe with a little bit more blood and pain. Um, 
And there's something to be said about blood and pain and the impact that has on the process and the respect you have for it and the impact it has on marketing and everything. But at the end of the day, we're talking about a solution, just a, a liquid of solubilized compounds. If we can make the same thing two different ways, that could be great. Especially again, when you're talking about the potential to ship 400 milliliters in place of 44 pounds, you've got some very tangible um, monetary environmental impacts from that. So I want to explore that further because I really believe in the end goal, um, as well as, and this gets back to sort of a question we asked at the beginning, which is like the purpose of pushing saturation further. One of the, one of the things that limits hop saturation specifically, and I love where all these, I had, I forget who was asking me this question the other day, but they were like, where do you learn? Like all this stuff. Is it like Yakima chief and people like that that are doing these studies? And I was like, usually it's like Miller and Sapporo, um, that you get all this research data from, right. um, because they're trying to figure out like, why do, why do hop extracts and, and hop products taste so different in our beers? We'd love to use a hop product. So we never have to touch a real hop again. Um, and so they do all this like very in-depth research as to why, and I've learned a lot of really cool things from reading some of their, um, research papers they've put out some of the things that are interesting about hops is that they're so hydrophobic that with dry hopping, for instance, at a lab scale, you achieve full saturation, peak saturation of volatile hop compounds in a liter solution after about four hours. Um, and it seems to be affected minimally. Like we're talking less than a 5% change, uh, at the a temperature differential of as low as 30 degrees and as high as a hundred. Um, which is to say that cold, short, dry hopping, has a lot of potential for extracting the same amount of all the compounds, uh, potentially not extracting some of the ones we don't like, like polyphenols, for instance. Um, and so we've been experimenting more and more with that. At commercial scale, There's a it, it's a little bit longer, but we've significantly shortened and significantly cooled our dry hopping over the last couple of years based on a lot of these studies. Um, the impact of that has been great. One, it gives us we still always stick to 21 day turn times for hazy IPAs, but it gives us that much more window. If we have something that's like this generation of yeast is attenuating a little bit slower, like not doing the seven to 10 day, 70 degree dry hops that were the norm circa five or sorry, 10 years ago when I got in this industry. Um, and doing these short cold ones gives us a lot more window to really get turbidity stable, get gravity stable, be past all of our checks for quality before we do these absurdly heavy dry hops, which is great because it means by the time we add them, we know the beer is good to go through the rest of the process. Um, uh, so what does that mean in terms of actual cold dry hop time now? Uh, so you we, don't do it in four hours. I imagine you're still giving a longer time than that. Uh, add 20 to that. We do 24 hours, 24 hours. Um, single charges, even up to like we've done as heavy as about six pounds per barrel of T90 dry hopping uh, 24 hours and then drop the cone after that. Because one, um, the saturation of the solution, we have actually tested um, getting gas spec tests every 24 hours of our dry hopped beers to see what is the volatile concentration and where does it fall off? We start falling off 24 hours. It's not a rapid cliff, but it is a cliff. Um, the other thing, and another one of these studies, uh, turned out was that once those compounds start precipitating because they don't like to be suspended in the solution, they fall out with gravity, like everything else. Um, they also reabsorb back into the vegetal matter from the hops. Um, so the, the next very important step is to remove the vegetable matter. So we dry hop charge at like mid 50 degrees, cold crash the next day, drop the cone the following day. And the idea there being let it dissolve. As soon as we reach a saturation point, let's get the vegetable matter out of solution as fast as possible so that it's not reabsorbing into that. 
And we've tried to push our dry hops further and further back against, you know, our transfer and cold crashing to where we used to dry hop for five to seven days, cold crash for seven days and then transfer. Now we're dry hopping for 24 hours, crash cooling immediately after and then transferring within 48 hours because that's how we've found we get the most carryover, Um, which is great because, again, like being able to use less um, is wonderful, uh, especially due to how we calculate the pricing of every beer. Beer costs less to make, costs less to the consumer to buy. Um, So it's being able to deliver more with every beer for less money for us, for consumers, um, creating more flexibility in our brewing schedule, better utilizing the things we're using, you know, being good stewards of our ingredients. Um, So a lot of opportunity there. And then fast forwarding into from that and those research studies into what we're doing with terpenes, what's cool is we add terpenes in the bright tank. Um, we add them during the bright transfer, which we almost, we're almost always doing, you know, 18 hours before packaging. So we'll rack about 50% of the beer into the bright tank. We'll treat the terpene solution immediately. Like literally someone's up on a ladder, ready to add it in. Somebody else is doing the treatment. And then within 30 seconds, we're adding it into the solution um, to try to cut down on potential oxidation once it's introduced to that high alcohol solution um, and and degradation that come from that. Um, But again, getting back to all this, these, these particles, they saturate rapidly they precipitate rapidly and they reabsorb into vegetal matter so adding terpenes into a bright tank means that we are cutting the time between addition to packaging down to an absolute minimum Um, we're also cutting out really any potential for reabsorption into vegetal matter because there's simply none left at that point Um, and uh, we're also at a very cold temperature so we can avoid some of the high temperature extracted flavors that we're not a fan of Um, and and then because of all of these other things that, again, prior when we're talking about the sa- the saturation points we reach with dry hopping. Um, and one of the reasons we actually don't do really when we say double dry hopped, we refer to an amount. We no longer refer to a number of additions, which used to kind of. Um, <laughs> we started to find that those subsequent additions, that vegetal matter that was precipitating out of the solution was taking the compounds that had been dissolved prior out of the solution um having Ooh, a scrubbing effect so interesting so that was part of where the diminishing returns were and coming there's from. plenty there's you know you know Shellhammer and, and allagash you know jason perkins had done some research on that same kind of thing mm-hmm. seeing that uh, you know at a certain point right your dry hopping matter is actually working against you and right. pulling pulling stuff out of solution and it seems to, to square up with that and that was part of the philosophy that drove using terpenes is you know there's there's no more vegetal matter at this point we can avoid a lot of these things that these studies have showed reduce the impact of our efforts to add more volatile compounds um and turns them into just things that get scrubbed out of solution by each other so i know that was a lot um so sorry for the listeners trying to follow that no that, uh, i think it's <laughs> interesting so talk to you i mean clearly you're using both methods like like i alluded to before you are not solely using terpenes or full spectrum Mm -hmm. uh you know kind of uh, isolate in order to brew with you are blending a mix of traditional dry hopping with this this kind of uh uh, you know approach so how do you you know it's not like this exists in brewing software to where you can just like plug these things in and it's going to figure it out for you how do you kind of you know idealize and visualize how the blends of these things are going to work together Yeah. um, Well, I mean, further refining the products is a big thing. Uh, And then, you know, 
it's, it's a constant feedback loop. It, and very much this works so much like engineering and software development where you, you make a little change, you try it, you see what happens, make another change, try it, see what happens. Um, we've learned a lot about how to use terpenes and uh, these extract products from beers that both use them and beers that don't. And actually another one that I poured, uh, the Eject Mine Capsule, which... I don't know if you finished that one already, no, too. No, I think I did, yeah. Yeah. Oops. <laughs> uh, it's, it, is, it is very much the, um, for anyone who's interested in trying this brand, it is very much supposed to be the absolute most saturated thing we could possibly create. So we use uh, terpenes, we use uh, super, or we use the full spectrum extract, we use the monoterpene isolate extract, we use cryo, we use T90, we use almost every hot product available to us um, in that beer. Um, and the order in which we use them is very important. And so this series specifically was inspired by other halves, HDHC line. Right. Um, and, uh, one of the things that some of the research I started to do after reading about some of what they were doing, um, though, I'm not sure how much correlation there is between the way that we're approaching and the way they are, um, using all these different products. So using incognito on the hot side, using a mixture of T90 and cryo on the hot side and cold side. Um, but then looking at that research and knowing that, okay, so we know vegetal matter pulls uh, things out of solution. So one of the things we do is we add the T90 dry hop first, we add the cryo dry hop second, and then we add the terpenes third. And it's this subsequent reduction each time of vegetal matter that's introduced to the solution. So just reducing the reabsorption potential of these volatile compounds. So that's been another way that, um, in part by reading some of you know the some of what other halves put out there about their efforts, um, what we can do to further the impact of some of these even more widely used products. Um, and that's a, a really big potential I see with cryo is later dry hop additions where you're not having as much reabsorption from the vegetal matter. I think you can get less diminishing returns with cryo than what you get with T90 for that reason. Um, and so with all these different projects, we've, we've been learning that, yeah, reducing the, reducing the exposure to vegetal matter adding more the more concentrated the product is the later in the process it goes in um and uh yeah so that that's that's kind of been some of what's philosophically informed how and when we add things is the elimination of vegetal matter the uh the preserving of the most concentrated components as close to the final product as possible and then changing the parameters of when and how we add them in order to make sure that we're not having any negative affect from that so like if you're doing super late dry hopping, crash cooling 24 hours later, and then transferring, still making sure that we're not extracting a ton of polyphenol, um, that we're not making an overly green beer, that we're not um, transferring over vegetal matter. Uh, so there's you know other steps involved with that too, but those are kind of all the subsequent efforts from using all these different products that have informed our methodology for how and when we add them to maximize saturation and maximize what we're getting from what we're putting in. On a kind of broader level, uh, you know, as you're using these kinds of, uh, you know, terpene extract products, um, how do you, in, you know, in order to balance with, say, traditional hops, how, where do you tend to fall on that? Is it 50-50, you know, new products, traditional hops? Is it, you know, 60-40, 70-30? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's going to differ from beer to beer, obviously, and, and what the goal is for any, any individual expression, you know, but but where do you tend to, you know, on an average kind of to fall as you're thinking about that? On an average, what we've settled on is... Um I like uh, I like using terpenes in 
and double IPAs especially because again they they are quite intense and so I feel like there's there needs to be a larger substrate to support the flavor that we're getting right now and I think that'll change as we further refine the product. Um, but in terms of the dosage, especially that's working, with these hazy IPAs, I mean double IPAs, yeah. they're, they're better expressions of those flavors than yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, so with dosage, what we have landed on that seems to be working for us right now, based on what we're using, is we're doing about in a beer that's maybe six pounds per barrel total of hops, about two pounds per barrel equivalent is terpenes, and as I mentioned before, that turns out to be more like one to 0.75 pounds per barrel of actual vegetal matter equivalent. Um, so yeah, so we'll, we'll we'll take usually like for a thirty barrel batch, we usually extract a forty four pound case. And, um, and something too, you know, for anyone interested in using these products and playing with them, we on every single batch, even with the same hop, same recipe, we, we haven't honestly brewed the same thing twice like this, um, but using the same extracts twice, uh, we always bench test every single batch, um, during the bright transfer. So what we'll do is we'll add about a quarter of what we think we're going to need, um, when we are about a quarter of the way through our bright transfer. And we pour a sample of the beer prior to the terpene addition off into a pitcher. And then we pour a sample of the beer dosed with the terpenes off of the bright tank during the transfer while it's still transferring. So we can get about a, you know, again, quarter of the intended dosage, quarter of the intended batch volume. Should be at the full batch volume at that point. And then we can dilute down with the unterpene adjusted beer until we find the exact perfect amount. So every single batch, we always use this process to dial in the exact amount that we want to have. Usually it works out just fine that like if we start with a quarter, we're not going to need to go down from there. I've, I've yet to have that happen. We almost always go up. Um, of right. course, you know, hops going up. Sure. Um, uh, but in any case, uh, that's that's the methodology we use for exacting our dosage. But it, it usually comes out to about that what we call two, th- two pounds per barrel equivalency, which is about that half to, or one to point seven five pounds per barrel vegetal matter equivalent. You mentioned glycosides not coming along for the ride. Yes. Talk to me a little bit about that. Yeah. I believe that this came from a group, from a Sapporo group study. Um, and so they were testing supercritical CO2 full spectrum extract for use on the hot side in lager uh, and noticing that there was a distinct difference between that and the T90 uh, equivalent beers that they were making. And so they decided to try testing the spent hot powder and they found that on its own, it didn't have any um, any noticeable aromatic compounds, but they treated it with, and I don't know for the life of me, other than probably just time and enough enough of getting it wrong to eventually stumble on the right thing, is usually how science goes. Um, they decided to try treating this spent hot powder from the full spectrum extract process. They had the extract that came from the process and they had the spent hot powder. They treated that with beta-glucosidase and found that there after being treated with beta-glucosidase, there was actually a very high concentration of monoterpenes in that solution. And so, as it turns out, uh, there's a decent amount of uh, these compounds called glycosides and hops, which are uh, monoterpene alcohols bound to sugars. I might have gotten that chemistry a little bit wrong, so sue me. I don't know. <laughs> uh, don't sue me. Uh, just send me a nice note later and be like, hey, idiot, you misquoted that. Um, anyway, terpenes bound to sugars. Uh, that are able to be released uh, in the presence of a beta-glucosidase enzyme, which is an enzyme that occurs naturally in a lot of different yeasts at different rates. Uh, We were discussing earlier our use of the Kolsch strain in our cold IPA, which was for this purpose. Britannomyces has a very high amount, or some Britannomyces strains have a higher amount of beta-glucosidase enzyme, which is 
you know, a handful of years ago, bread IPAs were like kind of popping off and people were like all about the biotransformative aspects. Glycosidic uh, hydrolysis is a huge component of where that was being driven from. Although I don't feel like that terminology was well within our lexicon at the time. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, for and none of them were stable enough, I think, to make really great long-term products. Well, that, uh, yeah. There was like a moment for those beers where they were beautiful and then things aged. Well, I think the challenge... Things kept happening. The challenge, too, is just that like we we love... I, I Personally, I really like the, the, ta- the flavor of um, these glycosidically bound monoterpenes and what they're adding to the beer. Um, but when, being, when they're being... Um, uh, solubilized with Britannomyces, you're also usually getting phenolic off flavors. For me personally, phenolic off flavors and and hop acidity just do not mesh. I don't like sure. it. Um, I li- I've liked a handful of bread IPAs in my time, but um, yeah, I think that's been more the hangup. It wasn't that the which is why the yeast companies are uh, genetically modifying and using CRISPR to uh, you know take off those you know phenolic generating components mm-hmm. of some of these yeasts and leaving the you know those beautiful fruit flavored uh, you know elements uh, you know to yeah. The- you know what I haven't seen that I'm surprised by is I haven't seen anyone and I, I don't know how much I again my knowledge on biochemistry falls off a good bit when it comes to gene editing. I don't know if it's easier to remove or easier to add than it is to remove. I'm surprised to not see. I'm sure there's research going into removing STA1 from everything. Um, <laughs> sure, that could sure. be life changing. Um, and uh, specifically, we we actually this tropically fantastic, which I think is the one that you have remaining at this point. We'll talk about a beer that's actually in your glass. Yeah. Um, this is a CRISPR modified London three to add the carbon sulfur lyase um, precursor gene. Um, which we can discuss. Oh, in a minute. you're trying to push those thiols, aren't you? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. We we, 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 we joked we, about. I joked about it in the the editor's note for the next issue of our brewing industry guide. But like you know, thiol, thiol, thiol. If there's a word for 2021, it's got to be thiol. Yeah. Well, I mean, and, and if you just like take the aroma of these three beers side by side, something you'll notice is that when you get over to this tropically fantastic is that beer, there is this nose of like rotting tropical fruit, which I love. I mean, I. Fruit right before it's rotten is like one of my favorite times to eat it. I think a lot <laughs> sure, of people sure. are that way. Like, you know, it's one our bodies are inclined to because it's the most nutritional to us at that point because it's been metabolized more. We can absorb more of the nutrients. I won't get into that, though. Um, it just tastes really good. We like it. It's juicy. It's tropical. Um, but stepping back into the glycosides, glycosides, for whatever reason, one of the few like pieces of the puzzle in supercritical CO2 extraction that are not soluble um supporter group i believe was who discovered this by testing uh treating their spent hot powder with beta glucosidase um and realizing that hop extracts would not taste exactly the same for the reason of not extracting glycosides which some yeast will metabolize and cause that hydrolytic process to happen where the monoterpenes bound to glycosides in certain hops which is not as it's not the same on all hops um and there's some other studies about that that are shell hammer studies um, for which ones are more heavy in monoterpene bound glycosides per hop varietal. Um, and we played with that too, because uh, there's also extracellular beta glucosidase enzymes available commercially, a romazyme from Lalamond. There's a beerzyme, I think, from Z. Loeffler. Um, and there's also a yeast, Meshnicalyaru coffee, which is available from the Yeast Bay, Yeast Bay, I believe. They're the one that's contract producing out of White Labs. 
um, that was isolated from a flower in Berkeley that the yeast was thought to have co-evolved with the flower to make it more aromatic for the sake of preferential pollination. Um, and so we played with using that as well. And I have trailed so far from your original question <laughs> that I will shut up for a minute and get us back on track. Let's talk about this yeast um, highlighting the the kind of, uh, you know, uh, releasing those thiols and uh, maximizing thiols. Talk yeah. to me a little bit about using that. Yeah. So um, this was our first experiment with using the the CRISPR um, mod, gene modified version of London 3 with the carbon sulfur lyase enzyme. And I forget what relative threshold they claim. I want to say it's like a one to 10 or one to 20 difference in the amount of CSL that London three will naturally occur with to what it produces with this gene edited. Um, I did find it interesting that for whatever reason, this is not classified as a GMO. So now I have no idea what that means. Um, Talk to me about using it, um, you know, from a kind of sensory perspective and from a, you know, functional perspective, um, you know, what have you found that, uh, you know, is different about using this kind of yeast and how does it, uh, you know, make for beer that you enjoy drinking versus say just adding a whole bunch more Nelson Sauvin to it that right. uh, is naturally uh, rich in that, those same kinds of uh, compounds. Right. And so, and I, I, I'm glad that you mentioned that because that really has been, I, I think an origin point for a lot of people's interest in this, which is this discovery that uh, Nelson galaxy, some of these huge heavy hitter strains that have been just absolutely famous for years um, for producing a very different beer when um, looking at the gas spec that's been provided to us up to now about what's in the hops, there's not been an obvious reason. Because again, we've been looking at acids and oils mostly, um, not terpenes, not free thiols, which we're starting to see those things being added to the reports we're getting from hop suppliers as well, prior to, during hops or selection and, and so on and so forth. I mean, even being able to measure these thiols you know, at the kind of like parts per billion that they occur in is incredibly difficult to do. And there right. just aren't that many labs that can do it effectively. And so, you know, there's all of those kinds of issues too. But Yeah. And, and, and what's, what's cool about using this yeast and what's cool about this research is going to thiols is that we're discovering that the, the mechanism and source for producing these flavors is not limited to hops. It's um, vegetative matter in general, um, and so, you know, Phantasm, which I'm sure has been brought up or discussed at, at some sure. point so far on this podcast, um, is exploring this um, more known uh, side of thiols and their impact on tropical flavors in wines that, that's been well understood for a longer time. And seeing, well, hey, is there a way to introduce these precursors to beer fermentation with yeast that have carbon sulfur lyase enzymes that will take these precursors and produce more of these tropical flavors so that you can use less hops, which is is my goal. Like the more we can use, use less and get more awesome. That's just great for humanity. Such um, a hippie. Ah, dude, 100 <laughs> percent. There's a whole other podcast I could be on for that. Sure. Um, sure. But nonetheless, um, uh, so with this, with this beer, we used, um, New Zealand cascade on the hot side and we used Nelson Savin and then a blend from freestyle farms called the Bruce, um, which is a free oriented, um, blend that they make, uh, cascade from, I forget whose study it is, but I know that it was, I believe it was presented at CBC at some point, um, is a predominantly regardless of growing region, uh, Cascade is shown to produce one of the higher amounts of thiol precursors. I forget exactly which thiol precursors they are and which 
styles they tend to lend to. Um, but it, it has one of the highest concentrations. Regardless of the growing region, I personally like New Zealand Cascade a little bit more than American Cascade, so that's why we use that on the hot side uh, to have the majority of that available prior to fermentation. And on the cold side, we focused on using hops that are higher in free thiols. We also used Phantasm, which, little little secret, we use that exclusively on the hot side now. Um, that's where we've had the best results. Um, kind of conflicts a little bit of the beta that we got going into using Phantasm, but that's where we've had the best results. And then noticing the difference between this beer because with we've done three in this series now of fantastic with a ph uh the first was hella which is a double ipa where we did it on the hot side and cold side the second was hecka fantastic which was just hot side phantasm and the third was tropically fantastic where we used this csl crisper modified um uh london three variant with uh the lowest dosage rate of phantasm we've used to date um and probably the next step will be to try this CSL modified London three in beers that don't have phantasm and don't have hops that are oriented towards those precursors and see how much we're getting out of our malt too, because, uh, sure. There's a few studies out there about, um, base malts having a very high potential for, um, for thiol production, which I think also lends to it again, another thing that we've done preferentially over the years, which is like people arguing about which base malts better for IPAs. I think without knowing it, this like thiol precursor potential has had an impact on that. Um, and uh, and so people have, have landed on some things that way without really knowing that that's why they landed there. Um, but one of our next things, because there's a lot of studies to show that, you know, more kiln malts have less of the precursors, more base malts than have them. I don't know why uh, there's not as much specificity on varietals or brands. I think that might get into like a licensing issue as to why that information is not as available now, or maybe it's just too new. Um, but that's kind of one of the next things we want to study with thiols is, man, we might be able to really push this character from our base malt and like our base malt might become that much more important in IPA production for us moving forward because of thiol precursor, um, uh, presence and, and amount. Um, but yeah, with this one, we wanted to kind of stack our our odds as high as we could. So used hops we know to be high in precursors. We used a grape skin that's marketed as being high in precursors that we know to be high in precursors. And and then we hope that our base malt's contributing too, because if it just is, then that'd be great for us. Um, and then we wouldn't have to make any changes. So let's keep our fingers crossed. But um, somehow it all just came full circle to malt. I don't know how you did that, but uh, that was that was pretty impressive. Yeah. Well, you know, and again, like. It's, it's been funny, too, to, like, go from where I was six years ago, bartending at night, brewing during the day, doing everything all the time, having very little time for a personal life, to where I am now, where I have a brewing team, and I have a taproom team, and sometimes I feel like, man, like, uh, you don't have enough to do day to day to, like, call this a job, and that makes me feel kind of weirdly existential, because um, I've never been in this position in my life. One of the benefits is, though, I get to dive very deeply into, especially with our IPAs, are we truly getting everything we possibly can out of out of everything we do? Um, because there are all these tiny little affects that are having the biggest impacts that have, we've ever had on our IPAs. And I think that our consumer base has really recognized how much time and effort we're putting into that, especially in the last couple of years, to, to research these things, to be involved with our suppliers and making very intentional products that we can then use again um, that, that have impacts beyond just making a good, a better, 
more affordable beer, but a, a more carbon neutral beer, a, a beer that just uses more again, it, or utilizes more of what we're putting into it. Um, I'm very personally passionate about that. And I'm glad that it naturally lends to making more interesting IPAs. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what most of my time is based, based around right now is, um, what is every little piece of this puzzle that we can possibly use to our advantage? And then, and then, you know, it goes further into as well, like my preference toward using wheat over oats because the lipids and oats can also reduce esterification uh, from yeast. So we've done plenty of IPAs with 20, 30%, actually did one with 80% oats. Um, and both from the affect we noticed anecdotally, as well as research studies that I've read about the impact of oats, seeing that, hey, oats might not be our favorite flaked grain for IPAs because of this reason. Um, and we kind of prefer wheat for that. But it's, it really is like all these little tiny things that we're finding that contribute to this bigger picture at the end of the day. Um, and yeah, so like making an IPA and choosing the malt way more than just uh, finding a blank you know, a, a clean canvas, uh, and looking more to, Hey, maybe our malt's contributing to the fruit character in a way that we never imagined before. Um, so it's cool. You know, it's really cool that there's so much research and so many suppliers and, um, products coming out, um, that are allowing us to dive this much deeper into how we make IPAs. Um, and, and this tropically fantastic is one of my favorite IPAs ever produced and a big reason for that is that I feel like we're delivering at like a double dry hopped IPA level with about 50% less hops, um, which is awesome. We're using less, we're making more, um, and it's a very intentional process to get there. So, yeah. Very cool. Um, in the big picture, let's zoom out. We've, yeah. we've gotten we've technically uh, into the weeds here for a long time. Um, for new image, for you, your business partner, what does success look like? What, uh, what do you hope to achieve here? And, uh, when will you know that you've achieved it or, or do you already define it uh, as having been achieved? Uh, yeah, this is going to come way out of left field. My idea for success for new image would be when the employees of our brewery are afforded as close to the same lifestyle as the one that I've been afforded by founding and owning one. Um, I really think that closing the gap between your highest level administrative employees and your lowest level labor intensive employees is one of the things that I'm the most passionate about as a, as an employer. Um, and, and not just pay, but especially time is something that I've come to appreciate so much more, you know, the ability, again, I, I moved to Colorado because I love mountain biking, love climbing 14ers, love skiing. I have to have time to do those things. You can have all the money and no time and it doesn't matter. Um, and I've watched so many people chase that money tree, um, straight into their, you know, midlife crisis. Uh, I, I really want to close that gap and societally, that's a conversation that we're having a lot. Um, I would, I want to start with me. I'll, I'll vote however I can to change these realities. I think that the system we live in makes it extremely difficult to do. Um, but I'm starting where I can, uh, you know, and we'll see what happens because, you know, COVID. But two weeks from now, I'm supposed to take my entire production team with me to go do hop selection, which is something we've never done because to shut down production for two days and that costs a lot of money. But there's that cost that we're really trying to address of like, well, there is the cost of not producing beer for two days, which for a brewery like ours, we brew package seller every day, 
every day that we don't operate is a is one less beer we make um, and one less beer we sell because we sell through everything we make um, with not a whole lot of seasonal change either. Um, but to change the mindset of value on, you know, is it about making as much beer as we possibly can? Or is it about doing that in a way that that makes us truly feel that we've accomplished something? And for me, that sense of accomplishment will come from continuing to invest further in employee benefits and continuing to invest further in affording our employees the lifestyle that we want to afford them. It's a big challenge for small companies. I will by no means claim that we are even doing a good or great job at that yet. Um, but it is one of my highest priorities for what what success looks like for New Image. Making good IPAs, having fun tap rooms, having a healthy separation between top and bottom line, all important. Um, but for me, those are all necessitating this goal, which is that the people that we call a team uh, enjoy their lives. Uh, yeah. Well, I think that's a great note to wrap it up on. G&D Chillers hits 28 degrees without breaking a sweat. Pathfinder N-Pure Seltzer Nutrient ensures reliable fermentation. Try fruit juice concentrates from Old Orchard. Pro-Fill can fillers from ProBrew use rotary counterpressure filling for high-speed and low DO. And make your system 100% food safe with Clarion Lubricants. Of course, if you'd like to support this podcast, go to beerandbring.com. Click on the subscribe button. Subscribe to Craft Beer and Bring Magazine. Subscribe to our Brewing Industry Guide. Uh, you know, again, a lot of the subjects that we're talking about here are covered across both of those magazines in different kinds of ways for, uh, for the different intended audiences. Uh, if you're a pro brewer, consider our all-access subscriptions where folks like uh, Stan Hieronymus are writing uh, significant in-depth stories on a regular basis around some of these new developments and hops done uh, as well our cbc party is uh thursday september 9th from three to five at beerstadt lager house we're buying the beerstadt lagers of course you can also come up here to new image and uh spend some time with brandon and learn about mental health uh in that same kind of time frame both important things and uh you'll be happy and enjoy the beer no matter where you end up for those um and our best in beer deadline again is friday september 3rd so uh hey you know send some beer our way for that brandon if people want to learn more about new image where do they find you um fortunately google has done a great job of uh making us available there but uh nibrewing.com at nibrewing on all social channels um yeah the best way to engage with us or just buy the beer we put qr codes on stuff now that's been a thing yeah and since covid um so yeah follow us on social media follow us online or just walk in come meet us that's our preferred method as we've discussed yeah yeah for sure for sure appreciate you uh you know making some time to talk to me about this cheers yeah, really appreciate the opportunity to be here you know it's 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 been very fun cool cheers yeah cheers This podcast is brought to you by Craft Beer and Brewing Magazine for those that love to make and drink great beer. Learn more online or subscribe at beerandbrewing.com or find us on social media at craftbeerbrew.